to uh, our text for this morning. And as I mentioned, we're in a somewhat new series that we're uh, taking up the rest of the summer, one of the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament. This is Philippians. This is a letter by the Apostle Paul and with uh, his spiritual son, Timothy, written to the church at Philippi. And uh, he writes this when he himself is in prison, probably in Rome. We're not totally sure, but uh, there's even a clue about that in our text this morning. Um, I, I, I hate preaching with a cup in my hand, but my voice is a little sketchy, so if you'll bear with me, I'll try not to slosh it over the, the stage. Um, Philippians 1 will be beginning in verse 12. You can forward, uh, follow there in the order of worship. Before we read this, something to, to keep in mind is that there's a way to misuse Jesus' words and not know you're misusing them. And I've realized that as a preacher and someone who teaches about the Bible, that I've done this a lot unwittingly, but it's, it's misusing things Jesus explicitly said. And here's what it looks like. It's when Jesus says, here's how something is, or this is the case, and a preacher or a teacher takes that and turns it into, you know, here's the way things should be. Or here's the way that we ought to think about it, when that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, hey, you know, try to rally yourself to think this way, or try to have a change of attitude so that life seems this way. He just says, life is this way. One example of that, you know, he does that a lot in parables. You know, these, these stories that convey incredibly difficult realities where you, you almost need story more than just propositions to get these difficult, deep things across. And there's a whole chapter of parables like that in Matthew 13. And one of the parables, it's only one verse long, Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says this. He says, here's what the kingdom of God is like. And all those parables in that chapter sound like that. He says, the kingdom of God is like a man who discovered treasure in a field. He wasn't planning on this happening, but he does discover it. He discovers treasure in a field. He covers it back up. And in his great joy, he goes out and he sells everything he has and takes that money and he buys the field. End of parable. One verse. Now, it's very easy for us to hear that or, or for a preacher to preach on that and to say, you know... Jesus needs to be our greatest joy, and that is not what the parable said. He says, the kingdom of God is this way. It is like a man who, not even knowing he would find it, discovers a treasure. And, he, and, he, and Jesus is very careful to say it, not that he's excited or that he's relieved, all his financial problems are taken care of, but that in his joy... He sells everything to have this. The words we're about to read are written by a man who hated Jesus. And he, he hated Jesus so bad that he hated people who talked to other people about Jesus. And then when he was going to, you know, act on that hate of those people, he met Jesus. And he experienced exactly what that parable says is the case. And the aftershocks of that are still spilling out of him years later. And he writes this. 
Philippians 1, beginning in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you've changed the history of the world as your word was opened and as your servants proclaimed the gospel. And all your servants are weak. All your servants are flawed and sinners. And yet your word is more precious than gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. So Lord, to us, let us hear it as gold. Let us taste it as honey. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you have a book that, uh, you know, if, if, if the house caught on fire and you got everybody out and you had one more trip to go in, you'd go grab that book or maybe some memento. But this would probably be one of my things I would grab. Again, after everybody's out, you know, even Jesse the dog, safe, safely outside. But um, this is an, it's an older copy of uh, C.S. Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And it's not a super valuable one, but someone gave it to me, and I just, I like the feel of it, like the smell of it, like, uh, I just like this book. And I had it for years before I read it. Finally read it, and was, because I'd heard about this book for years. It's Lewis writing about his life. And the way he frames his autobiography... You know, you need, you need some sort of skeleton or, or, or narrative structure to tell the story of your life. Well, what he hangs the whole account on is 
this elusive experience he had. And he said basically it began to define his life. And it made him realize why finding Jesus was the answer to all his real questions. And, and you get a taste of that just from the title that he entitles it, Surprised by Joy. And he describes early in his life that he had these very um, formative experiences where he would bump into something transcendent. And it might be through something that he saw. He was a voracious reader his whole life. Often it was through something that he read. And, and he would not even be planning for this to happen. But he would bump into something so transcendent that it was like a sense of the divine. And it, and it would leave him with an aftershock that he dubbed throughout this book, joy. He always capitalizes it, joy. He says one of the first experiences he had of this, he was reading um, this, this uh, work by Longfellow. Again, he, and he, you know, his day job, he taught English and was just an absolute expert in English literature. <clears throat> He's reading this work by Longfellow really as a child. And, uh, and he says, you know, I wasn't expecting anything to happen. And he says, there came a moment when I idly turned the pages of the book and read, I heard a voice that cried, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead. He says, I knew nothing about Balder, much like we probably don't, don't either. And it's, it's, it was a work about Norse mythology. It's kind of Viking literature. He says, I knew nothing about Balder, but instantly I was uplifted into huge regions of northern sky. I desired with almost sickening intensity something never to be described, except that it is cold, spacious, severe, pale, and remote. And then, as in the other examples... I found myself at the very same moment already falling out of that, that desire and wishing I were back in it. And throughout this book, he said, you know, he would be going along just desperately wanting that to happen again. And then every once in a while, he would bump into it again and kind of go, ah, ah, ah. And then as soon as he felt it, it was gone. And it was, if you saw the quote on the front of the bulletin, he says that it's like pleasure or happiness, this experience that he dubs joy. But he says, you could almost liken it to unhappiness. You could almost liken it to a kind of grief because it's so elusive. You can't hang on to it, but it's the feeling that if I had that, I could endure anything. I could do anything. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I probably should not tell you, and that is that this morning, as a preacher, I feel like I am at the end of my rope of competence. You might feel that every Sunday, but I, I personally feel it this morning because I'm trying to verbalize to you something that poets and musicians and writers have struggled to verbalize quite literally for millennia, and it is hard as Dickens. It's this. It is that I, I think most people in this room have not encountered joy through Norse mythology. Some of you have, and I commend you. But I dare say that simply because we're, we're all human beings, every person in this room has had at least one moment. It literally may have been a moment where you might have been alone. Even where your friends are just a few yards away, you might have been standing by yourself on the beach at dusk. 
or you might have been sitting on a porch, or you might have read a line from a book or a poem, or you saw a particular scene of a movie, or the seasons were changing, and it wasn't just that you said, yes, it's fall, the leaves are falling, but autumnness washed over you. Or you were at a game and the smell of it, the people, even I mean, it could even be the smell of cigarettes and bourbon around you. It could be anything. That just for a second, something bigger than you, something bigger than the experience that you're immersed in washed over you. And as quickly as you felt it, it was gone. And it may be because that happened at the beach, you love going back to the beach and you hope it's going to happen again, but it almost never does. In fact, it probably doesn't. Or maybe you, you, you watched the movie again and it didn't happen. Or you went to go see that group in concert again. Or, or you had, tried to have that same conversation again and it, and it doesn't happen, but maybe it happens in another way in a different place. You rubbed up against something so transcendent that you thought, I am feeling what life is for. And Lewis calls that, I think accurately, an encounter with joy. When when you bump into it and have an experience with it, we could call that enjoyment. When you go to the thing and say, I think that's the thing that can give you joy, that's rejoicing in something. Saying that thing or that person or that group... That can do it for me. That can do it for you. That's rejoicing in something. Now, think about this. Paul, again, we've got to keep coming back to this. He's writing in prison. No phone. No texting. No laptop. No iPod. He might, through a friend or a sympathetic guard, have some kind of reading material but not enough to occupy him for days and days and days on end. He has worlds of dead time when he's not writing Scripture. He has worlds of... That was a joke. uh, Worlds of dead time. We are terrified of dead time. I mean, one of the reasons our hand shoots for the stereo as soon as we've turned the key in the ignition is don't let there be quiet. The reason we increasingly text as soon as our eyes open in the morning is don't let there be quiet. He has worlds of quiet, or at least worlds of boredom, and he says, I am rejoicing. Now, that should be at least compelling to you. Even if you're not a Christian, it should be compelling to say, he is saying, because this discussion of joy and bumping into the transcendent and it washing over you, and then as quickly as it came, it's gone, that's an old discussion. That predates Paul. That he is able to say, I have found it. But in a sense, it doesn't elude me anymore. I have it. Even right here in prison, when my circumstances are admittedly crummy. How does he have it? And here's what I want to look at this morning. I I want you to see him rejoicing. And really, these are two sides of the same coin, but let's have two points here. Rejoicing in the gospel's advance, rejoicing in the gospel's hero. Now, again, if you're visiting, when I say the gospel, that's a biblical term. I'm simply talking about 
uh, the good, it means the good news. It's the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished. That's what the New Testament calls the gospel. Okay, rejoicing in the gospel's advance, rejoicing in the gospel's hero. Okay, first off, sitting in prison, in bonds, maybe, maybe he's riding with one hand, maybe chained with the other, we don't know. Hard circumstances, he says, I am rejoicing. Look in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, you know, uh, as a church, sometimes we get letters from missionaries, some that we support financially, and they'll write and tell you how things are going. Uh, Some of you may have received letters like this. You may know someone who's a missionary or or, uh, working with a ministry abroad, and they may send letters to let you know what's going and, and even solicit funds. Now, who in the world would start off a letter and say, um, everything is going great, we feel like we're hitting on all cylinders, and I am incarcerated. And that is exact, that is literally what he says at the beginning of Philippians. He says, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Yeah, what happened to him? He's in prison. And he says, hey, look, don't worry. It's almost like uh, in a movie I saw about paratroopers. Somebody says to, to this uh, group of paratroopers, says, you know, we're, you know we're surrounded. And the guy says, we're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. And it's, it's almost as if Paul is saying, you know what? I'm in prison. They've imprisoned me for the gospel. We've got them right where we want them. How do we have them right where we want them? And, and he starts almost describing the layers, the ripple effects, right? Verse 13. First off, non-Christians. He says, I'm in prison, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, the praetorium, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. This is one of the little clues that seems to really strongly suggest that he's in prison in Rome. Think about what he's saying. You've got all these Roman guards, high-level guards, the imperial guard. And if I were just out there, they might think there's, there's some weird Jewish vagabond guy that, that is telling people about some sect um, that's led by this Jesus person, and they might just kind of maybe have a drawing of me somewhere. But because I'm in prison, all these guards know why I'm here. They know that I'm here because of this thing called the gospel. They all know that. Okay, and they're not Christians. They would be pagans in the classical sense. It says, okay, there's that layer, and then what's the next layer? Verse 14. It says, most of the brothers, Christians, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That you would think, hey, what we need most, what we need most is for... I mean, there's just only one Paul... We've got to get him out there. He's got to be on the front lines. He's got to be unhindered to write and speak and teach and do his thing. He says, as it turned out, because I'm in here, the brothers are doing the speaking for me. And they are bolder than they've ever been. And then he says this, and then there's another layer. And this is the almost odd layer, verse 15. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry... He says, now there's some that don't. Some are preaching Christ because they love Christ. They want people to know Christ. They love me 
because we both love Christ. But he says there are people out there right now, and it's out of envy and rivalry that they're preaching about Christ, as if they know that's going to afflict me. It's hard to know who he would be talking about, but apparently there were people in his day that were out there preaching about Jesus Christ to afflict Paul, I guess as if to say, hey, Paul, look at how many conversions we're producing. Eat your heart out while you're in prison. That would be incredibly cruel. I'm sure the cruelty of that stung him. He says, but you know what? Whether, Whether people are preaching Christ, it's interesting, he doesn't say preach the gospel. And it's the same, but he's very particular. If people are preaching Jesus Christ, that could sting initially. But upon reflection, I rejoice because at the end of the day, that means Christ is being preached. Why can that be such a source of joy for him? Because think about what we just said. Paul is sitting in that prison cell and he is remembering, I used to hate this Jesus. He was upending everything that my life was about. He seemed to be destroying all the traditions to which I was committed. I hated him and I hated his followers. And then I met him. And it initially terrified me. And then in his mercy, comfort and joy flooded into my heart. And surprise, surprise, all this joy that eluded me from trying so hard to obey God and so hard to keep all the traditions of the elders, to live the Pharisee's life, to be utterly strident in my obedience, and for joy to escape me my whole life. And then I met him and it flooded over me. You know, our call to worship from Psalm 16, what did it say? It was very intentional that we use this call to worship this morning. It says this, that, Lord, in your presence is fullness of joy, and there are pleasures forevermore at your right hand. I'm sure that Paul, for years, thought, why does it say that and I don't have it? And then he meets Christ. And he gets it. And he is sitting in this prison cell and it's washing over him. Not only do I have this, whether I'm in prison or not, I've got it. But these guards who worship all these Roman gods, I think they're going to get it. And all these brothers and sisters of mine who already have it, they're telling all these other people about it. And then there are people out there who have it in for me, but they're preaching Christ, so who knows who's going to get this? I want to read something to you. Uh, Three weeks ago, National Public Radio ran a story about China. The name of the story is called, In the Land of Mao, A Rising Tide of Christianity. Listen to this. And and I had not heard some of these. I'd heard some of this, but, but not some particulars. In this story, NPR describes a city, Chinese city. I don't know how to pronounce this. It's W E N. Z-H-O-U. So, Wenzhou or Wenzhou. I don't think it's Wang Chung. Uh, you know, everybody Wenzhou tonight. Wenzhou, it says, Wenzhou is known as, quote, China's Jerusalem. Wenzhou is known as China's Jerusalem. It has more than 1,000 churches. And at least 12% of the population is Christian. And here's the icing on the cake. It's also one of the richest cities in China. 
where private business is booming, meaning that Christians there who are interested in the gospel going out can actually work to fund that. And that's happening. And this article says that estimates are that there are 75 million registered communists in China. There are, by conservative estimates, 100 million Christians. Now listen to how this article ends. It says, China's Christians are pushing back the boundaries and the authorities don't seem to know how to respond. Recent reports say some leaders of larger unofficial churches are harassed and persecuted and their congregations are prevented from meeting in their previous places of worship. But in the rural parts of China, young missionaries are operating, and this jumped off the page at me, without hindrance. And not to read into this, but those are the last two words of the book of Acts. Is that the gospel went forth without hindrance. And whoever wrote this said the exact same thing about the Chinese countryside. Last two sentences. China's youth once trundled across the countryside spreading communism. Now they're spreading God's word. NPR.org. Now, why do we need to hear that? You know, I, I, I can't speak for you, although I think I would be speaking for some of you. But sometimes, as, as the pastor of this church, I can become discouraged that my mental pictures about what would happen one day don't happen exactly the way I wanted them to happen. Uh, I would quickly insert, thank God, you know, that they haven't. But one mental picture is that we're just going to have, every once in a while, some just startling, knock-your-hair-back conversions that are going to blow people's minds. You know, and these aren't going to be garden-variety people becoming Christians like there's any such thing. But this is going to be like, I mean, somebody that was a heroin dealer, you know, is going to become a Christian. And we're going to be the first church they were ever in, and they're going to be baptized in front of everybody. It's going to be awesome. And we really have not had that. And and I was at a conference a few months ago. I heard a speaker, pretty well-known Christian speaker, John MacArthur. Uh, He's a pastor in Los Angeles. Very bold, very bold guy. Used to be on Larry King Live all the time. So doesn't lack for boldness, very knowledgeable. But he said that there would be long season in his church's life, L.A., not Bible Belt area, where there would just be no, uh, not a lot of surprising conversions, not a lot of growth. You just kind of would plateau for a long time. And as I, as I thought about these words, I thought, think about how good this is for us to hear. Because when I'm thinking about, I want the heroin dealer baptized now. What I'm really saying is, in our church, so we get to take credit for it. But if what we really want is for heroin dealers to meet Christ, they are. All over the world. You want prostitutes to meet Christ? They are all over the world. You want young, highly educated American professionals who think that this is their parents' religion and they're going to dust it off now that they have a life of their own. Do you want them to meet Christ? They are all over the United States. 
This good news advances, and it bursts into people's lives, and it does things that there is no way to explain as behavior modification. And in Paul's day, he could sit in prison and say, you know what, I want to get out of here. There's a lot of work left in me, but I rejoice in that. But the real source is, again, two sides of the same coin, is the gospel's hero. Um, Okay, if the gospel is that powerful, if it goes out with a ripple effect, whether we have our hands on it or not, and by the way, if you're in a season of life where you can't do a lot of evangelism or teaching or instructing or share because of work or because of maybe children or illness or whatever, take heart. This is encouraging to me big time right now. Take heart. God's Word goes out with or without us. Well, if that's the case, you know, Paul is saying, well, then I I do have more work left in me. There's more fruitful labor in my life. I want to to do this even because I love you Philippians. But he says, you know what? I'm really torn. I'm very torn. Why is he torn? Look in verse 22. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. And then he says this, I am hard-pressed between the two. Now, that English translation, hard-pressed, it's a translation of one Greek word. And it's, it's, something that descri- it's describing something more intense than, should I have mocha or decaf? I don't know. It, it's, it, it, it's a word that Jesus uses in the Gospel of Luke to describe his inward state as he anticipated a crucifixion that had not happened yet. He talks about being distressed until it happens. And it's the same Greek word. Paul says, I, I really agonize internally about whether to go the distance, because I love you Philippians, and I want the gospel to go around the world, or to do what I really want. Because you know what I really want? And what you might expect a guy in prison who's worked so hard to say is, I want to go to heaven. You know, I want my heavenly reward. I've been beat on and shipwrecked and punched in the face. I've been flogged. I'm tired of pushback from people who should uh, see that I'm telling them the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and I want to go get my rest. Is that what he says? Now, he is describing going to heaven, but how does he frame it in verse 23? He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Paul does this not once, but twice in his letters, where he says, heaven is not a generic, happy place, kind of like Oz existence. But heaven is when you come into his presence where there's fullness of joy, and you are near his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. But who is at his right hand? Jesus Christ is at His right hand. And that's where all the joy and all the pleasures, even the ones that trickle down here to earth, are starting. And you're right there. 
You know, I told you I felt at the end of my rope of competence. Let me tell you another reason I feel at the end of my rope. I don't know how to do justice to the sentence. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. I think one time in my life that that was powerfully not explained, but just modeled to me, was in my last year of seminaries, my first year of marriage, Dana and I were living in St. Louis. And this man in our church, not old, at, at the oldest, early 60s, had a cardiac arrest or just some kind of crisis with his heart and um, flatlined. And I think for all intents and purposes, either almost died or died on the table and was brought back. Now, boy, did this story make the rounds of the church. When he came to, his wife was right there. The first thing he said to his wife was, Why the heck did you do that? And you would, you know, you would think, like, here's the love of your life, your girlfriend, just, you know, this is the wife of your youth. She never left you. She was right there by your side when you, you know, just kind of went to the precipice of death and you're dragged back. Somebody grabs you by the back of the shirt and you open your eyes and she's right there that you think that's like a best case scenario. And he sort of rebuked her. He said, I, I was about to meet him. And y'all brought me back. Unbelievable. And he meant it. And did not apologize for it. <laughs> but I would ask all of us this question. And I would ask you this question whether you are a Christian or not a Christian. Because both are here. What is the thing that in your life you say, oh, I, can't, I couldn't stand the thought of dying today because if I died today that would mean I would not have... Then it is highly probable that whatever the remainder of that sentence is, is something that you are looking to as if it is a source of joy. And you know what? If whatever fills in that blank is something that you do enjoy or that you would enjoy, that's fine if it's part of God's good creation. But if you look to that thing as the source of joy, that is idolatry. Whether you are a Christian or not, it is to take the creation and try to make it be and do something only the Creator can be and do. And Paul says this, Christ is not someone who helps me accomplish my goals in life. For me to live is Christ. And it's not a life of drudgery. Paul might even say it's not Christianity. He might be okay with the term, but he's saying, I'm not talking about a life of incessant Christian great activity. I'm talking about life is a person. Fully God and fully man. To have Him, you rejoice. To not have Him, you might have occasional little bumps where you feel something because He's good and generous, but you will never have the real source. I've I got to quote this. Toward the end of Lewis's autobiography, he says this, that when he began to realize that joy can't come from any literature, 
any experience, any panoramic view. He says, I saw that all my waitings and watchings for joy, all my vain hopes to find some mental content on which I could, so to speak, lay my finger and say, this is it, had been a futile attempt to contemplate the enjoyed. He says this, at the end of the day, all those experiences were saying to me, it is not I. I am only a reminder. Look, look, what do I remind you of? Think about what you enjoy. And think about if in your enjoyment there was ever a moment of transcendence where you thought, if I could stay in this, I could do anything. Then the experience is saying to you, look at me. I'm not it. But what do I remind you of? And the pages of Scripture are screaming. It's pointing you to Christ. It's pointing you to fullness of joy. Let me end with this. Uh, The last night of Jesus' life, His last time with His disciples, He he exhorts them, abide in Me. He doesn't just say, remember My teaching. He says, abide in Me and let My words abide in you. Don't just do activities that you think I want you to do. Live in Me and let My word live in you. In you, and then he says this, I say these things to you. This is unbelievable. He says, I say these things to you so that my joy may be in you and so that you may have fullness of joy. And sometimes, because the text demands it, I stand before you and say, Jesus is the one who takes the wrath of God from us, the wrath that we deserve, and takes it on Himself. And it's right and good to say that. But what the text is saying to us this morning is this. We want joy, but we look in all the wrong places. It's not found in any concert, as as, as great as that can be, book, person, relationship, It's not even found in Christianity as a system. It is found in the man Christ Jesus. I can't do better than to end with how this book, Surprised by Joy, ends. Lewis gets to the end of his tale, and he says this, When we are lost in the woods, and if you've ever been lost in the woods, you'll relate to this, When we are lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. He who first sees it cries, Look! The whole party gathers around and stares. But when we have found the road and are passing signposts every few miles, we shall not stop and stare. They will encourage us, and we shall be grateful to the authority that set them up. But we shall not stop and stare, or not much, not on this road, though their pillars are of silver and their lettering of gold we would be at Jerusalem. I wouldn't ever want to discourage you from enjoying the good music, the good art, the song, 
the friend, the poem, the beach, the porch, whatever, but it is a signpost. If you find Christ, you can enjoy the signposts for the rest of your life, but you will never confuse the signposts with the road. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we who have worshipped signposts rather than walk the road toward Jerusalem, we would ask your forgiveness. If there be any here that have had experiences of the transcendent, have, have felt or tasted just a moment of joy, the stab of joy, bittersweet, oh Lord, would you enable them, would you enable us to go to Jesus Christ at your right hand and find in Him fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Amen.